Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this great commission, as it were, is twofold. We see the aspect of evangelism, and we see an aspect of discipleship in this uh, great commission. One of the, uh, the writer of the book, The Marks of a Healthy Church, lists evangelism as one of those marks of a healthy church. We can gauge our churches how healthy they are by seeing how effective and passionate we are about evangelism. So from our title, we'll look at some definitions. Who is a Christian woman? A Christian woman is a woman that has a personal relationship with God. And because of this salvation that she has received in the Lord Jesus Christ, she is a child of God. She is born again. And that is what compels her to want others to know about this Savior that she herself has met. <coughs> a call or a mandate is an invitation from God for each one of us to do. And then the Great Commission. This is the mandate that the Lord Jesus Christ left for his followers to do. Now a mandate is not something that, or a call, that you can either say I want to do it or I do not want to do it. It's more of like a command. And so we are obliged to do it. I'll start out now by talking about evangelism. Maybe before I give you what definition I have, what is evangelism? In simple terms. What is evangelism? Evangelism is to speak about the power of the cross. The power of the cross, yes. Exactly. So simply put, evangelism is telling the good news about Jesus. And this good news is that God can deal with the greatest problem of mankind, which is sin. And that's why I said that is the greatest news that we can ever want to share before we even share our own personal achievements. And those who have a personal relationship with him will speak about him excitedly and with agency. One woman we can see is the Samaritan woman in John and chapter 4. We can turn there and anyone who's there can read verses 39 to 42. John chapter 4, it's a long account, so I'll just, we'll just pick out those verses uh, later on in that story. 
So John and chapter 4, verses 39 to 42. Whoever gets there, please read for us. Thank you. So from this woman, we see how that when her problem of sin is addressed, she is safe from her sins. She cannot help but go and tell others about Christ. And that should be a challenge to us as well. That evangelism should be something that is part of our lifestyle. It shouldn't be something that we just associate with, <laughs> with church. But it should be something that is part of our lifestyle. So in evangelism, both God and man have roles that they play. <coughs> the roles that God play in, in evangelism include him planning and providing the way of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 3, before the foundations of the world, he chose us. So God already has people scattered all over this world that are his own. And he chooses those people. And he makes a plan in which those people will come to saving grace. God also sends. It is God that has given us that mandate to go out. And so he sends people. It is God that saves. Sometimes it's very frustrating when you keep on sharing the gospel with somebody. And they are not changing. They are feeling like I'll never go to that place again. I mean, I'm tired. But it is God that saves. And if we know that it is God that saves, we will not stop until he saves that person. Because that is outside our own control. And then uh, it is also God that grants the fruit from our labors. Sometimes we want to see success from our ministry in our lifetime but sometimes we will not see that success in our lifetime there are some people that did good work around here and the church here is established they don't know what it is like now because they are they are deceased but we are reaping the benefits of what other people did to bring the gospel to us so we may not see it but it is god that actually blesses the fruit of his own labor other verses we can write down are acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that is that he saves that he gives growth first corinthians chapter 3 verses 5 to 9 and that all fruit is attributed to the lord himself the same first corinthians chapter 5 verses 5 to 7 so we've looked at the role that god plays in evangelism he chooses 
He provides a way to salvation. He saves, he gives growth, and he's attributed to all the fruit that is uh, uh, born from that labor. But man also has to play a role. You and me. I'm using man here loosely <laughs> since we are talking about us women being given the mandate to share God's word. So man also has a role that he must play. The first role that man plays is to follow and obey God's plan. From the passage that we read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go ye therefore. That is us now to be obedient to that call, to that command. It is us who are supposed to witness. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 48. God will not come down here and share the gospel. That is our responsibility, to be witnesses. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, Be my witnesses, starting from Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the world. That is our responsibility. That is our call. And then, for us, it is to put in our work, to put in our energies, to put in our time, that is the role that we are supposed to play. Can somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. 1 Corinthians 3? Yes, 5 to 9. <laughs> Then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Yes. The responsibility that we have to put in our all, with each one of us doing one part of this whole work of evangelism. Some are planting, some are watering. But in the end, each one will be rewarded for their labor. No one is greater than the other because ultimately the glory is to God and it is God that gives the increase. But what we must remember is that each one of us must do something. There is a hymn I like to sing. There is a work for Jesus none but you can do. Sometimes when we come to not only evangelism, many other things in terms of serving God, we tend to look over the fence. It should be Mrs. X to do that. No, I think Mrs. B is around, she can do it. No, Mrs. Z, and we are never in that picture. But each one of us is called to do something, and we must do that which we've been called. When we come to issues of evangelism, there are some important questions that we must ask ourselves. Number one, who should evangelize? For these ones, I'm giving very, very brief answers. Who should evangelize? All believers. 
That's the answer. We see that in Mark chapter 16, verse 15 to 16, and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Why should we evangelize? We should evangelize because we are commanded to do so. God has commanded us to do so, and so we must evangelize. Can somebody also read uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17? Romans 10 and verse 17. So we evangelize because people must hear. It is important that the word of God is preached. People will not come to faith without hearing God's word. And then number three, what are the motivations for evangelism? I've grouped these into two categories. The man-centered motivations, simply put, they are bad motivations, and the God-centered motivations, which are good motivations. Under the bad motivations, people may evangelize because they fear that they'll have to close down a church due to very low numbers. You may notice in your church business meeting, you're not getting as much offering. There are empty seats in the church. And so you think if we go and evangelize, we'll get more people to come into church. That's a wrong motivation. Others would evangelize because they want to appear spiritual. They want to be seen carrying a Bible around and sharing God's word. That is a wrong motivation. Others evangelize because they want to win an argument. Sometimes you find when we are meeting people who are of different conviction from us, instead of bringing the gospel as it is, it ends in an argument. This is what we believe. Even them, no, this is what we believe. And it appears to be okay to win that argument at the expense of desiring to win a soul for Christ. But the good motivations that are God-centered are you go to evangelize because you desire to be obedient to the Great Commission. You want to give glory and honor to God. You want to be a Christian that obeys God. Another motivation is that you have love for the lost. When we look and think of the eternal destruction, it's painful to think that our own children, maybe our siblings, our parents, may land themselves in hell because we haven't shared the gospel with them. Some, about two months ago, uh, or so ago, I lost a cousin of mine to drowning. He went on an outing with his friends, a normal day, and it's, it, it was a hangout for them all the time. And he suddenly felt so compelled to swim. Even when his friends told him, no, you can't swim, 
He decided to get his car keys, drive to Pep, even buy a shot to come and swim. And that is how he died. The first thing that came to my mind was that two years prior to his death, he was in my house because his elder brother was getting, was marrying here in Kitwe and uh, he was in my house. We talked about everything else than the gospel. We were catching up on life, oh, how things had happened. We were so excited about the wedding and we were thinking how that he would be the next groom following his older brother. And there he went. And I thought, you see, we were so preoccupied. Oh, have you found a job? Have you applied? Where have you applied to? And things like that. And so love for the lost should compel us to share God's word. Because we don't know if our meeting with them may be the only chance we have to share the gospel. But ultimately, our motivation should be that we love God. And uh, a writer called Deva says this about the love for God. He says, love for God is the only sufficient motive for evangelism. Self-love will give way to self-centeredness. Love for the lost will fail with those whom we cannot love. And when difficulties seem insurmountable, only a deep love for God will keep us following his way, declaring his gospel, even when human resources fail. Only our love for God, and more importantly, his love for us, will keep us from the dangers that beset us. When the desire for popularity with men or for success in human terms tempts us to water down the gospel, to make it palatable, then only if we love God, we will stand fast by his truth and his ways. Like I said, sometimes we want to take the salvation of people personally into our own hands. And we've seen now all these papas around that are trying to do everything else that is contrary to the gospel in the name of trying to win the numbers. But when we ultimately love God, we will do that which he wants us to do. Even when we are discouraged and chased and told off for sharing the gospel, we will not give up. We will go back there and share the gospel. How should we evangelize? Number one, our evangelism must be done publicly. Preaching of God's word in public meetings. The way it's done on a Sunday. An aspect of the gospel is incorporated in the one who's preaching. It could be through structured activities like door-to-door -door evangelism. It's becoming more and more difficult now to do door-to-door -door evangelism with all these gates we have. With these animals, people keep in their yards and you don't know if you will be mauled by a dog and all their challenges. But that is one way that we can do uh, where we have a deliberate program and say, oh, we'll be in these streets here in Riverside. The sharing of print messages can have tracts that you can give and people can, can read. We can also take advantage of uh, social media platforms. We are living in a world where it's all in everything is almost like on media. 
we can try and see how we can use that. There are some churches which will be putting out some messages, putting out sermons and using media positively to share the gospel. Because now you'll find there's an audience that you can actually reach also through media. But we should also evangelize privately. Like I mentioned earlier on, we shouldn't link evangelism to a church program. But we should look at evangelism more of a lifestyle. And so we should evangelize privately. In a normal conversation with somebody, bring out the gospel. We are talking about flowers, those who like flowers, or those who like baking and all. In your normal conversation, talking about what you saw at Nakadoli Market, all those things. Bring out the gospel in conversation. And then, of course, evangelize through your conduct. People watch us. They watch what we do. They watch how we dress, how we talk. And it's unfortunate sometimes that we put people off. That when people from church go to evangelize, they even say, I'll not even come to your church. Because they can't even associate Bana X with the things of God. So we must evangelize through our conduct. To a point that people will ask you, why are you the way you are? Because you have such kind of a character that radiates the Savior. What are some of the obstacles to evangelism? Truth be told, evangelism is not an easy thing. It seems easy the way we are talking about it on paper. <laughs> but there are, there are serious obstacles that are out there. Number one, there is a fear of failure and rejection. You go for evangelism, you knock at a gate, you don't know how you'll be, whether you'll be welcomed or not, whether they'll send the dogs on you or not, whether the gospel itself will be welcomed in that place or not. That's one of the obstacles. Another obstacle is being overtaken by activities. You organize a, a women's breakfast, an evangelistic tea, and you are so overtaken by the structure of the program. Or is the food there? Or is the deco done? Is the whatever done? And in the end, the focus of preaching of the gospel sometimes is not even there. Or sometimes the preaching of the gospel is given very little time. And then it will be, oh, this one, come and give tips on doing this. Auntie who, come and talk about time management. But it's an evangelistic event. So the focus of sharing the gospel becomes like a small aspect. And everything else in that program seems to overshadow it. That becomes an obstacle. Should we do those evangelistic teas? Yes, we should. But we should always have it in our mind. What is the main thing of this activity where we are drawing women? It's an evangelistic tea. It's not a kitchen party. So the gospel must be shared. People must have time to talk one-on-one -on -one with those that may need further clarification. So being overwhelmed with the activity or the program 
may be an obstacle to us evangelizing. Sometimes even being overwhelmed with uh, things that are happening in our lives. So we cannot prioritize. Thinking Saturday they announced there's evangelism and you're thinking my whole week was crazy. My children were sick. Work was overwhelming. And Saturday I just want to sleep. And then on Saturday, Sunday, last Sunday, they announced in church, nine hours per church, we are going to evangelism. And you're thinking, Lord, I think you understand. Uh -huh. So sometimes even we are crowded with so many things in life, they tend to be a distraction. Our attitude also that our pastors and the church leaders are the ones who are called to evangelize. Sometimes we feel because we pay our pastor, he's the one who should be going. As we also have other jobs Monday to Friday. Him, his job is just saving the Lord. So why should I be even pastor? We should rest for Saturday. Or sometimes we think it's for those who are highly spiritual in our churches. The elders, the deacons, the ministry leaders. And so we take a back row. But if we go back to where we started from the Great Commission, there is no rank of who should go and who shouldn't go. All those that are saved are given that charge to go. There is also a guilt of sin sometimes. Sometimes we feel we are inadequate to share God's word because we are struggling with sin. And on this side of eternity, we will struggle with sin. We cannot be perfect until we are glorified, until we die and are given new bodies. On this side of eternity, we will fall into sin. But sometimes we feel... I think I can't evangelize because of these personal struggles. I don't feel I'm where I should be. But we should be encouraged that we don't have to be perfect for God to use us. A man after God's own heart, David, was a man that committed adultery, a man that committed murder, a man that today if you don't even allow him to be a pastor here. But God says he is a man after my own heart. And when he sins, he goes back to God, creating me a clean heart. And that is the attitude we should have. To go back to God and say, I've sinned, and I don't want this sin to be a hindrance to me serving God. And the last hindrance is selfishness. We do not want others to know what we have. It's selfishness. It goes back to those motivations I talked about. Do we have love for God? Do we have love for uh, the lost? And then another hindrance is just a total disobedience to God. Because when we fail to live by that command, we are in total rebellion to God. We are outrightly being disobedient to God. So we must strive to have evangelism as a lifestyle and sharing of God's word with those who are progressively close to us while extending the net to those who are further and further from us. Acts chapter 1 
and verse 8 gives us a pattern there of evangelism. Verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come to you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, sometimes we think of evangelism first. Those who are uko, in Shangombo, in Chelenge, but... Um, a man called Thompson, in his book, uh, uh, Concentric Circles, talks about a model of starting with evangelism from those who are closest to you, which would be your family. From your family, you go out to your relatives. Family, I'm talking about your household, your relatives. From your relatives, you're going to your friends. From your friends, you are going to your neighbors and associates. From there, we are going to our acquaintances. And then lastly, we go to person X, who is somebody, a total stranger we don't know. But we are quick to have person X in mind. When there are people in our home that do not know the Savior. The neighbor we like talking talking with every day. Oh, shiny neighbor, shiny neighbor. We've never thought of sharing the gospel with them but they are the closest to us. The people that we work with, some of them we've worked with them for years, they don't even know that we are Christians. We are too embarrassed to even mention church-related things. So evangelism must start firstly with those closest to us and progressively going, going, going. In fact, in the end, when it's so much of your lifestyle, it becomes just a part of you. The way we can openly, those of us who are in business, sell our things, we don't even wait to be asked. You're already pitching your kind of thing. For me, I have Nakonde rice, it's first grade. Me, I'm doing cakes. In fact, now I'm at another level. I've even learned how to do this and this and this. Give me a call, I'll give you a discount. But with the gospel, we are mute. So let us try to make evangelism our lifestyle. And that we must make every moment an evangelism moment. Another writer called Brit Merrick has this to say. The hope that we have in Christ is so gloriously wonderful. Why will we ever keep it to ourselves? When we refuse to communicate the gospel, there is nothing more cruel or selfish in all of humanity because we do believe that it is the only way christ is the only name by which men and women can be saved and to withhold that name and the news because it's difficult or is on par with any other atrocity atrocious thing humanity has ever seen we are to we know that there is war between ukraine and uh, russia we know about uh, this uh, Rwanda genocides. He's saying that us failing to share the gospel, we are at par with those people who are doing atrocious things. Because with us, they are not just going to die once, they will die twice. The eternal death, eternal destruction. 
So we must take sharing the gospel very, very seriously. I will jump to discipleship now, unless there are any questions. Do we have any questions? Okay, so I'd mentioned that when it comes to the Great Commission, it's twofold. There is evangelism and there is discipleship. So it's not just also about just sharing the word of God, but it is now teaching those that have come to the saving knowledge so that they themselves also can stand on their feet and share the word of God as well. So that in the end we are achieving a multiplication system. One person shares to one, you become two. Those two now are each sharing to one person. Again, those are discipled and one of those. Before we know it, it is a web. And that is why we have the word of God also here. Because in Acts, we see when persecution started, as people were running away from persecution, the gospel was moving with them. And today here, we have the gospel. So discipleship is teaching. Inviting someone to follow us as we follow Jesus, and then stepping aside so that they can learn directly from the master themselves. So, discipling has got to do with a relationship between two people. One who is the teacher and the other one who is the learner. But this teacher and learner relationship is such that you want your learner to stand on their own. That they don't constantly be dependent on you. But that they would have learned so well that they themselves can become a teacher also. So discipleship includes training. And uh, it comes in different forms or patterns as it were. You can have the mentor-mentee type of relationship. This is our modern day English. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then you have um, the peer type of relationship where among friends you are discipling each other. Then you have the teacher-student type of discipleship arrangement. It could be an older woman who is trying to train a younger woman, the way the mentor, mentor, or teacher, student. Or it may be a peer arrangement. The young ones are discipling themselves. The older women also are in teams and they are, are discipling themselves. In terms of biblical examples of discipleship, we see Jesus Christ with his 12 disciples. Them learning from him every day of those three years of his ministry. We see the 70 disciples that are sent out two by two in Luke and chapter 10. We see the disciples in the book of Acts that are first called Christians in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. We see the famous Paul and Timothy kind of relationship. That's a discipleship arrangement. And we see Titus and the various groups of people in Titus and chapter 2, where the different groups of people are told to be sound in doctrine. 
the older women must teach the younger women. The older men must teach the younger men. And we see that pattern in Titus and chapter 2. We may ask ourselves, what do we want to achieve from discipleship? I'd mentioned that you want to walk with somebody, but step aside at some point so that they are standing on their feet and they themselves are replicating what they have learned in other people. So we want to see people imitating and following Christ. Again, when it comes to discipleship, it is not about us. It's not about the mentor, about the teacher. It is about Christ. You are imitating Christ and you want them to learn to imitate the Savior. We want people to achieve Christ-likeness, that they should become more and more like Christ. As Christians, we must be getting better in a word that is called being sanctified. We are not at the same level. It would be sad if we came here after 20 years, if God gives us breath, and she's still like this. It would be painful for a parent. But when it comes to spiritual things, somehow we have malnourished, dwarfed believers. They are not growing. Huh? If after 20 years you are still talking of diaper, you are still talking not to mukapeko, no mukumbireni porridge, mutualen kwanda five, I mean, it, it just, it, 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 we can't imagine it. But that is really what happens when we are not working on discipling the younger Christians. People remain like that. They're in churches for many years, but they're not growing because they're not being helped to grow. Or maybe they have their own problems, which we can't all get into. But our desire must be that people are made to be more like Christ and that... Uh, they are being renewed every day and that they are being gradually conformed to the image of God. So we want, when I said our evangelism should be by our conduct, those are the benefits we see from when discipleship is done. We are seeing people, when people look at them, they can see a change in that person. That is not the way my neighbor used to be. She used to insult and watch. She's changed because she's being conformed more and more uh, into the likeness of Christ. What must we desire when we disciple others? Second um, Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. I'll quickly read verses 1 and 2. There the Bible says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. When we are discipling, we want to entrust that which we have been given to faithful men, who in turn also will be looking for people who they will disciple and entrust we want to see that convents in faith are growing and replicating themselves 
just like the word of God was shared to you, you came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you want others to meet the Savior. And in turn, those also must be sharing uh, uh, the Savior. When we disciple people, we want them to be equipped so that they are not tossed to and from. Ephesians and chapter 4, from verse 11 to 16 there. We don't want, when these papas come, we are missing church and we are running to papas. No, because we are not grounded in God's word. We want to see growth. That is what we want to, that's what we desire from uh, um, a discipleship. That we no longer be like babies, like he said in First Peter and chapter 2. That as newborn babes desire pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. But you will not end at just milk, like I said with our little baby here. But you graduate from that into eating in shima, into breaking bones and all. Because you are uh, growing. So success in discipleship does not depend on numbers. Again, sometimes we think we need to be many of us to effectively disciple others. Instead, it is based on a relationship that produces lasting fruit. I want us to hypothetically just imagine if every year you just, just one person that you disciple, just one in a year, Maybe let's even stretch it to every two years. A, a person you invest time with, they will grow in grace. They will stand on their own and also will be able to do what you're doing with them, with another person. Think of how many years some of us have been here at Riverside Chapel. If we go by discipling somebody by two years, how many people would you have discipled? That one, each one of us can answer because we've each been at a church for different years. But I want us to look at it as to think of how a church can be made different if even four people just made that difference. The impact would be seen. The impact would be seen. Such kind of discipleship that when you step aside, that person is able to do what you did with them, training other people, walking with them, teaching them how to study God's word, praying with them, going out for evangelism with them. Our churches would be totally different. We'll look at five case studies of discipleship. Okay. Again, I've chosen to look at different case studies from the Bible because the model of discipleship will be different. Most of the time we look at discipleship that it should be structured, that we should come here, the, 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 the mentor and the mentee must sit in church in the corner and uh, 
They must be meeting every week at whatever time. That could be one model of it. But I want us to look at a life-on-life -life type of model where we are discipling one another outside church. Why do I say outside church? Because somehow here we are all spiritual when we are at church. Hmm? Even if I stepped on one of you here, you just say, no, it's fine, Mrs. Chone, it's okay. <laughs> but if I tried to do that, maybe if it was at your house or we were somewhere, yeah, we may be removing words that can't even be mentioned here in the house of the Lord. Uh -huh. Because somehow it's as if we, we, we put on Christianity, immediately we drive into the driveway. We are all at our best. But we should look at discipleship having an effect on somebody's life when they see the real you in your real homestead environment when you're struggling with your children when you're struggling maybe with your husband or with your dependents when you have bad workmates and all how do you live out the christian life when it is tough out there it's easy to live it out when we are here at church singing songs nicely praying together it's easy our first story or case study will be Ruth and Naomi. We will not open that book. It has four chapters. You can read it in your own time. But um, Ruth and Naomi are an unusual kind of relationship. It's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law relationship. These days we hear these guys that mother in love, mother in love. They're having nice abapongosh. Number we don't know. Just imagine the proper, proper abapongosh relationship. If we can picture it. It is an unusual relationship. But Naomi has so much impact on Ruth. That Ruth is willing to leave her family. The gods that she used to serve. To go to a new place with her mother-in-law who's widowed. She herself is widowed also. Her mother-in-law tells her, can you remain here? Because I can't have a child at this age. Even if I had a child, you can't wait for him. Get a life, I'm old. But the effect that we see that this mother-in-law has on this daughter-in-law is phenomenal. It is not this Christianity that is just lip service. I am born again, me, I love the Lord, but your actions are contrary. But I take it that her lifestyle was such that if Naomi talked about her God, Ruth could see something about a difference in the God she served because of the way Naomi lived out her life. And that even when they were faced with difficulty of oh, the father-in-law dies, Ruth's husband also dies. Her, 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 her husband's brother also dies. Naomi doesn't lose hope. And that's the type of discipleship I'm talking about. The unusual type. Where at a church, it could be an older woman with a younger woman. It could be a working class with a non-working class. But it is when you look at it, it doesn't seem to be a perfect type of relationship. But the impact can be so great and we, it can be seen. 
So Ruth 1 and verse 16, it's one of those very, very uh, famous verses that are quoted. It says, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. I don't know if we would have such kind of a model relationship in a local church of an unusual type of relationship that leaves a lasting impact. When they move away from Moab, they get back now to Naomi's place. Ruth continues to listen to the advice of her mother-in-law. She tells her what to do, and she doesn't argue. She listens, and later we see that it is through Ruth that the King David is born, and it is through that line eventually that the Lord Jesus Christ is born from that unusual type of relationship. Another one is Elizabeth and Mary. We see that story in Luke and chapter 2. Elizabeth is an elderly lady, but she's cousins with, uh, with Mary. Mary is a young girl. Some researchers say she could have been not more than 16 years old. Elizabeth is old. She's even past that age of bearing children. And... Um, at that impossible time, God blesses her with John the Baptist. She's pregnant for John the Baptist. And Mary, when she gets news that she will be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if it struck you. It struck me that Mary's parents are not mentioned in the story. Whether her mother shouted at her, whether she was thrown out, whether the parents felt she was a let down, they are not mentioned. When, Eliza, when Mary gets that news, the first person she thinks of going to see is Elizabeth. And she goes and she spends three months with Elizabeth. She's an elderly cousin. She could have gone crying to her bestie or whatever. She goes to Elizabeth. I think also because there's something that she had seen in Elizabeth. There's something she felt that maybe she could relate with Elizabeth. Something strange has happened to her. She's a girl. She hasn't slept with a man. <laughs> Today, if your daughter comes to tell you, you know, I'm pregnant, who's the father? Who, who impregnated you? I know it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You don't know how her parents would have reacted. <laughs> but I think if I was that mother, I would have lost it. Just, just tell me the truth. Why are we bringing me? <laughs> Why are we bringing such stories? Just confess. But we see that she goes to Mary and Mary, she spends time there with Elizabeth. And there is something that she's seen in Elizabeth that she herself seeks to go there. Sometimes we will look out for people that we can disciple. But sometimes people will come to us and we should embrace those people. We should help them. 
Maybe there's something they've seen in us that they want to learn from us. We shouldn't feel, ah, these people, she's just on me, this kakashana nake nakaria, so ni sande ala nkonka kumotoka. There's something maybe that she's seen in you that she wants you to help her and have an impact in her life. We see this of, again, a classic example because it is an older woman and a younger woman. Mostly sometimes the younger women feel that the older women must seek them out. The older woman must say, ah, Mwaiche, come to my house. But here the younger one goes, she follows the older cousin and she spends time there. Another uh, discipleship case study is Priscilla and Aquila. In Acts and chapter 18, verses 24 to 26, for Mary and uh, Elizabeth, that's Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to 56. Priscilla and Aquila are a couple that are in ministry. And um, this couple have somebody that comes in their midst and he is teaching. But what he's teaching is really not uh, completely okay. Let's see what this couple do to him. So Acts chapter 18, verse 24 to 26. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Discipleship also Maybe because you have identified a certain challenge or problem in an individual. How does this couple deal with this situation? They hear him, but they get him and discuss privately. Sometimes we lose the people that would disciple because we openly rebuke them. We openly correct them. Simple example, our young people today have a way in which they dress. So sometimes they come to church in the way in which they dress and we can see it's not okay. And we approach them maybe in the presence of other people. We embarrass them. Instead of taking time and tell her, oh, please come home. Have some tea, some snack and now chat with her. Find out and whatever and address the issue. We see Priscilla and Aquila sitting this Apollos down privately and explaining to them clearly. So if it's a challenge, we see, oh, this one is dressing. You now start explaining clearly. Oh, how should a Christian woman dress and things like that, things like that, things like that, clearly. So we can take a leaf from there. Number four, Louis. Eunice and Timothy. Can somebody open 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5? 2 Timothy. Chapter 1 and 
chapter 1 verse 5. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Yes. There is something there that as women we can learn when it comes to discipling in the home. When I mentioned about that model of evangelism, I said we start with those that are closest to us, progressively going to the world out there. Right in our home, we can make an impact. This grandmother rubs onto her daughter. A daughter, they are rubbing onto their son Timothy. Sometimes it's heartbreaking to see strong Christian women and men. But the children that are coming out of their homes, it's a sad state of affairs. But of course, I go back to what I mentioned earlier, that salvation comes from the Lord. But in as much as is humanly possible with us to do, it's to walk that journey, walk that journey, have that kind of impact on our children. For those of us that even have children that have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, let's disciple them. Let's talk with our daughters. Let's build them up in their most holy faith so that what they learn from us, they'll also be able to replicate when they start having their own children will be building up an army for the Lord. And the last case study we'll look at is the Titus 2 older woman. A famous passage in Titus chapter 2 challenges the older women to be fervent in reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, but be teachers of good things. So apart from, with evangelism, we mentioned that um, all must evangelize, even discipling, we can all disciple, we must all disciple, but there's a special mandate that is given to the older woman. Of course, we'll ask who is the older woman. There are those indeed who are elderly in age, I can see my mother's there elderly in age, uh, elderly in faith. But again, loosely speaking, all of us here are older women because they are younger women than, they are people who are younger than us. So for us who are youngish, we have those teenagers, young adults are younger than us. We can have impact even on those. A charge, a challenge is given that we must be exemplary in our behavior. Watch how we use our tongue. Because it is sad sometimes to hear where something you confided in, a, in an auntie is being talked about <laughs> in the car park. <laughs> and somehow your ear just says, that sounds like my situation that I've just had when I was passing from the bathroom. So, or older women must watch their tongue. They must be self-controlled. Titus says, not given to much wine, 
we may say with us issues of wine are not an issue but it's not given to excesses as an older woman too much use of social media too much watching tv too much of everything we can learn they need to be self-controlled because they in turn will teach um, the younger women and that they should be grounded in sound teaching because it says they must teach what is good how you teach what is good if you do not know what that good thing is that which is from god's word and then you can actually now influence uh, the younger women so discipling can be done in a structured manner where you deliberately meet with like i mentioned the mentor mentee arrangement it could be peer type of arrangement it could be teacher student arrangement over a period of time some churches have those maybe six months one year they are uh, discipleship classes and things like that you can work out something but discipleship also should be life on life outside that structure so that people can see what does a christian look like when they are outside their comfort zone when they are outside the nice church environment what will people see as somebody who will disciple another person just remember that discipleship will take your time it will take your energies it may be frustrating also but you need also to possess quite a number of characteristics you must be humble because sometimes when we're talking about these unusual type of relationships it may require some humility it requires you to be a good manager of your time because discipleship requires you to put in your time how will you balance up oh i must help this person i've got so many other things on my plate and as women we know better it's as if god has made us with many hands and legs because we have so so many things that we need to do so you need to manage your time well you need to be patient not all um, people that we disciple will be easygoing obedient like ruth nice like mary some of them may may push our buttons but we should be patient with them praying for them loving them we should have wisdom again the fear of the lord is the beginning of all wisdom spending time in god's word will help us to give the right kind of advice to show people the way in which they will walk we will not be giving advice with what is trending in the world now but we'll use scripture as our basis we will be transparent we will not live a life where people don't know who we are or what we are we will be an open book but being an open book doesn't mean that you'll be washing your dirty linen in public no but that people should see something in you the way ruth could see in naomi the way mary could see something in elizabeth because of that transparency 
they should be loved. We had mentioned in evangelism that love should be that motivation to share God's word with the lost. With discipleship also, love should compel us. We don't want a woman to walk alone in a local church. Somebody should be there uh, to walk with them. I end my case here. Are there any questions? Or maybe contribution. I could have been saying something, maybe 